I wanted to thank the Octopus Group for their continued support of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Now, you may know Octopus now as the consumer-facing energy brand, but actually they are part of eight entrepreneurially-minded companies that look to back the people, ideas, and industries that will change the world. We've had the founders, Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future before, and we've also had the CEO of their investments division, Ruth Hancock, on as well. So it's worth going back and checking those previous episodes and listening to how they plan to back the people, ideas, and industries that will change the world. Today's guest is Michelle Donlan, the Secretary of State for Science, Innovation, and Technology. She's one of the youngest cabinet ministers having been born in the mid-80s, and she's also going to be the first cabinet minister to go off on maternity leave in just a few weeks' time. Today, we talk to her about her department and how it's going to help businesses create jobs of the future. We talk to her about semiconductors, artificial intelligence, quantum computing. Her department is more involved with the future of our economy than almost any other one. It's a great conversation about how the UK economy is getting match fit for the future and what opportunities there are out there. Michelle, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you. What is the role of the Secretary of State for the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology? That's a good question. Um, So we recently set up the department only a few weeks ago. So I'm the first person to ever hold Mm. that office. Uh, So really, I've been able to to make the role my own in that sense. And what I've tried to do is make sure that we're doing things a little bit differently to the rest of uh, the way that traditionally Whitehall's been done by really utilising the expertise and skill sets of those in industry, those in research and science, and make sure that their voices are utilised so that we can co-collaborate together. And that's the type of department that I've been trying to to forge by bringing people in on secondments, also getting civil servants out on secondment is what we're going to be doing as well. And I see my role in this is very much pushing forward our agenda on science and technology so we can become a superpower by 2030. That also means working across government because a lot of departments have their own research and development budgets. We need to be working strategically so we can meet that goal. And the point of that goal, I guess, is to make sure that people's lives are being improved because we know the way that technology and science can impact us from the NHS to transport, the, the, lim- the possibilities are limitless. Um, what did the Prime Minister say to you when he appointed you? Because as you say, it was a new department, yeah. so you can't have... It must have been a bit of a shock. Surprise. Well, that whole reshuffle was a, a very well-kept secret. Normally, you get a bit of an inclination, but we didn't on that one. So they did a very good job at that. But I was in DCMS just before this. So I was already doing the digital, the telecoms, um, tech side of things, working on the online safety bill, working on the data bill. So I already had that. But what I've gained is science and innovation and lost some of the other stuff. So the Prime Minister presented his vision for how he wanted to reform and restructure government and how he felt it was really important that we brought all of those things under one roof so that we could have that more strategic approach, which I think is, is absolutely right. You know, when I was doing DCMS, incredible brief as it was at the time, it could be a little bit frustrating uh, if you looked at things like semiconductors, where you'd have most of the policy, but not all of it. Um, and just having that ownership and that ability to hold the complete pen on certain things just makes it easier to push things forward. And I think you've, you'll have seen that with the pace of how much we've just churned out since we were established from the science and technology framework to the AI white paper to getting out the compute review to the money for quantum in the budget. 
These are monumental announcements that we've made in literally weeks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and how are those secondments working with it? Because it's always a challenge of government of how do you get private sector uh, expertise in uh, and also getting the private sector to understand yeah. government more. How are those secondments working? So we're in the process of, of setting those up. So we're, first of all, onboarding um, some people from the science community. And then we're going to onboard people from the, the tech community. And then we're looking at how we can get the civil service out as well. Um, but not as, as long a period of time because we do actually need them so that we can keep churning the announcements out. But I think it's important that everybody's skill sets are, are fresh. And then the approach I've always taken um, to any ministerial role I've had, including in education, is to be very much um, forward leaning on the stakeholder engagement and having an open door policy so you can hear those voices. Because the reality is that the decisions that we're making are going to have a direct impact on how industry operates, on how many jobs they can create for the people in my constituency and up and down the country, for how technology can advance and the impact it will have on real people's lives. So we need to be listening to those people who are living, eating and breathing it every day. And out of the five priorities that were set out in the framework at the beginning of March, which one excites you the most? Well, it was 10. Is that a trick question? No. You mean the tech? You mean- <laughs> I was like, see what you're trying to do there. <laughs> I'm sure you're not. No, it's the, it's the five. Now I'm going to try and remember them. Quantum, advanced. Oh, you uh, mean te- the five technologies, not the framework. Yeah, yes. So the science and technology framework had 10 yeah. points to the plan, but there were five technologies that have been adv- um, in existence uh, set um, well before the framework was ever set. Yes. So that's before the department existed as well. The government had identified those strategic priorities. Um, in in terms of our technologies that we're really focusing on, but they're not an exhaustive list. Yeah, we are, of course, um, working to support other technology. I'm not sure there's particularly one that I would say is the game changer above the rest because that's the whole reason why we've got the five. Mm. If you look at semiconductors, for for instance, they're in uh, all of the the devices that we're we're used to using, whether that's a a car or a mobile phone, etc., if you look at AI, you know, that has the ability to really unlock some transformations that are almost unimaginable at the moment, especially in terms of uh, healthcare and the lives that it will save. And telecommunications is vitally important for connecting people, for driving growth. All of those uh, five key technologies have a uh, a reason to be in the list. How can they solve the kind of UK productivity problem? Because there's a challenge that the UK's had for you know for a long time, really, since the turn of the millennium, you know, so it's not a party political thing per se, of you know, just sluggish productivity, you know, outputs from inputs being lower than European rivals and so on. How can that be improved? I think technology itself has the ability to help us with our productivity. Uh, absolutely. But it also means that we can work smarter and more effectively. And that we can utilize uh, people's time better. I'm thinking of teachers, for instance. I'm t- thinking of, 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 of medics. So that they can potentially do less of the admin side and get on with the job that they're, they're, they're excellent at. And we want them to be doing day in and uh, day out, which will then in turn boost their productivity. So that's why we need to be creating the right environment for enabling these companies to be able to flourish here in the UK Um more so potentially than other countries around the world so that we can be making sure those jobs are coming to the UK. We are leading the way in those advancements as well. So take quantum computing, for example, which is a lot of the government's already announced the budget, as you were saying. Yeah, we've got some amazing kind of hardware companies in the UK like M Squared, uh, Oxford Quantum Circuits, Orca, for example. How can we make sure that 
the government is able to help double down on these companies without sort of selecting winners? Yeah, I think if you look at the reason why we are successful in tech uh, and science, and in tech year, we've got one of only uh, uh, three economies in the world that have reached over a trillion dollars in terms of the tech sector. And you think about why is that? Why is our research base flourishing? It's because we've got the right ingredients already there, be that um, the, the skills, be that the, the infrastructure, et cetera. But what we need to do is double down on that and really uh, intensify and make sure that we're building on those areas to enable those companies to grow. It's not about the government saying we're backing company X. It's about creating the right ecosystem and environment for those companies to flourish. And part of that is around, I think, skills. I'm really fo focusing on skills. So that's one of the key priorities that I've made since being in the department. And we've done a range of different announcements, uh, including um, in working with the Department of Business and Trade on our talent networks to try and draw in more people, as well as growing our own as well. And then a second area of focus has been on scale-ups. We're particularly good at startups in this country, but we need to get even better at scale-ups. Um, and that's, that's another area of focus as well. And then the third one is regulation. We have to get the right regulatory environment. And a good evidence base for that is our AI white paper that we recently published, which is listening to industry who have said, you know, it's really confusing at the moment. There's lots of competing different regulations. Regulatory behavior is different from one regulator to another. It's not helping us to incubate this technology and see where it can take us. So what we've done is listen to that, worked with 130 businesses and academics, we produced a white paper that is focused on agility and being flexible, but also safety and transparency, but enabling that incubation so that we can have a cohesive regulatory framework. And how do we improve the second point there in terms of scale-ups? How do we improve the funding for scale-ups? Because it's right, it's part of the evolution of the technology and science ecosystem in the UK is behind the US, but is catching up you know, quite quickly, actually. What can be done by the government to kind of improve that funding aspect in particular? Yeah, I do think funding is just one aspect. Um, there are many different uh, factors that will encourage and enable a, an a business to be able to scale up. So they will include the things that we've talked about today, like skills. They will include um, the access to, to resources and infrastructure and all of those different things. So things like the innovation zones, et cetera, will help create the right environment. And the budget was awash with different uh, announcements that will help businesses to be able to scale up. If you look at the R&D tax credits, for instance, all of these policies will enable businesses to keep investing and growing here in the UK. And when it comes to AI, there's obviously, there are these sort of, you know, thunderclap moments when it comes to technology and so on. And, and chat GPT just before Christmas was one of those. Yeah. Evolution of it so much quicker now. Um, what have your instincts been when you've played with it and so on? Oh, I think it's an incredibly inciting technology. It's not completely there yet. We know that obviously these technologies are only as good as the data you put in and it's not completely reliable in terms of the information that you get out, but that's why it needs to continually be refined and invested in so that we can get to a position where it is reliable. Um, but it has huge potential. I think Obviously, when utilising it, everybody needs to be mindful of the limitations, especially as it's in that incubation period. But it will open up doors and opportunities. That's why, as a government, we've set up a foundation model task force that we're in the process of, of developing further so that it can really ensure that we get some sovereignty in this space, that we are getting the jobs located here, that we're leading the way. And that this kind of technology, including large language models, can be utilised in our public services because I want the people in my constituency and up and down the country 
to get the benefits in terms of our NHS, in terms of our education system. I don't want this to be reserved for other countries in the world or other public services outside of the UK. And how do you think it could impact public services in terms of what tasks do you think it will be able to take away from it? So when we look at um, artificial intelligence in general, we think about how it can transform our public services. The the possibilities are limitless. We are talking about being able to diagnose people's um, illnesses earlier by utilizing technology. We're talking about uh, the better development of drugs, more specific drugs for particular um, ailments and illnesses. We're talking about reducing some of that burden on doctors to free up more time so they can treat patients. We're talking about helping with the admin side in terms of booking appointments, all of that. The stuff that um, will make a tangible difference to people's lives. I went to DeepMind recently and I saw the work that they've done bringing the tech side together with the science side really in one collaboration under you know, one roof. And it just shows how we can advance together. I think they say that they want to make um, scientific discoveries at digital speed. And that, that kind of sums up what the, the mission is here quite, quite well. Um, and where do you think it might create jobs? What jobs that don't exist now do you think we might see in the next couple of years? Well, I think, one, there will be a lot of jobs in the production of AI and in the AI sector itself that are not in existence now. We've got 3,000 companies um, that are, are working in AI at the moment. We want to grow that. Um, but also there will be the creation of other jobs that we haven't thought about as of yet and the reduction of some of those admin sides of, of roles freeing up the possibilities within different sectors. And there's been a lot of studies on this because I know people are concerned. People will say, well, is technology going to take all of our jobs? And a lot of the studies out there show it's the opposite. It will actually create jobs because of the, the types of things that we'll be developing and producing. So if we think about, um, like we've spoken about in healthcare, if we think about the advances that might happen in education and other stuff, you know, they're still going to need some human involvement to progress those different areas. And what's the one of the things that I was struck by in the in the framework was the talk of the sort of having the clear vision for the strategy, similar to the nineteen sixties US, you know, we're we're going to the moon, right? And everyone remembers the speech. What is the kind of vision in terms of, you know, how good could this be? Well, I think it, first of all, it's already good at the moment. We shouldn't talk uh, down the UK, as we said before. You know, we're we're, we're third in the world in terms of. Um, our tech sector, we've got a buoyant uh, scientific community and we're already making uh, big advancements year on year. And we want to, but we want to, to grow that. We're not just going to be a, a challenger nation. We actually want to uh, support our industry and support our scientists. And we've got this goal that by 2030, we'll be a science and technology superpower. And what does that mean? It means that we'll be drawing in more investment. It means that we will have created more higher paid jobs, but it actually means that people's lives would have got better. They would have felt the benefits personally of technology and science advancing. And how do we how do we kind of upskill people in that area? Because it's one of the things that I often kind of think about is that everyone now has mm. access to more of the same information than ever before in, in human history. If you compare you know an Oxford Don to you know a kid growing up in a council estate they almost have the same access to information now a more equal access than they did 30 years ago but actually one of the challenges is the oxford don knows how to use the information and, and sort of is therefore able to kind of make it work even more in his favor and so how do you sort of square that circle i think 
First of all, transparency is really important. And that was one of the principles um, behind our AI white paper, because we need people to be able to understand uh, and know what, what data they uh, and what ramifications are happening in terms of the technology that they're utilizing. But you're right that technological literacy is an important aspect of this. And that's something that the government is going to have to continue to work on throughout the years as this advances and evolves. But also companies themselves have a responsibility to play here to make sure that everybody understands the tech that's being developed, but how to use it to get the maximum out of it. And also the risks as well as the opportunities. Yeah. Um, and I, I do want to come on to the, uh, the risk side of it. But what sort of flesh out that, that, that vision for how this could impact people's lives in terms of how, how could it be positive? What is the best upside case scenario? So I think it, unless we double down on supporting uh, the growth of, of technology and the growth of AI in particular, then it will be reserved for, few, for a few people rather than the majority. How do we make this mainstream? How do we make most people be able to benefit from it is by really enabling the industry and the sector to grow and to develop and push through some of those barriers so that it can go into our public services, so that it can be utilised um, as an everyday part of our life so that everybody can tangibly feel the difference and, uh, and have their quality of life improved. So it has to become more mainstream. That's why we're investing as a government in these technologies. It's not just about us creating a regulatory environment. It's about us putting our, our money where our mouth is. Um, in AI, it, for instance, we've invested 2.4 billion since 2014 alone. We saw the two and a half billion pledge in the uh, budget for, for quantum. We've seen the amount of money we're pouring into skills across the board for technology. We've seen the amount of money that we're, we're pouring into research and development on the, on the science side, 20 billion um, in the next few years. And that's because we recognize that this does have to be something that benefits everybody. Uh, whether that's them utilising public services, whether that's a, the, the way that they get to work in a cleaner, greener car, uh, all of these things will making our lives better. Yeah. And, and on the sort of the flip side, at the other end of that, you know, the founder of OpenAI, Sam Altman, has said, mm. you know, the worst case scenario is the lights go out on us. Is, is that something that you worry about? I think that there are risks with uh, any uh, advancements in society, especially the ones that we're talking about here today. And we've been very clear about that. The government is not uh, shying away from the fact that there are risks. That's why in our approach to all of these things, including um, AI, we've been very upfront about safety being an absolute number one principle, um, as well as, as, as transparency, so that people have full, full insight and knowledge as to uh, what is happening, especially with the use of their, their own data. But safety is important, and that's why we have regulatory frameworks and it's why as a government, we would always be prepared to, to step in where we need to be. And that's why we need a system that's agile and responsive, because who knows where we're going to be in 10 years time. We need a government that's going to be able to change and adapt to the situation that is happening in, our, in technology. I just wanted to take a brief minute to tell you about an upcoming episode. One of the five critical technologies that the government outlined in its science framework last month was the future of telecommunications, the evolutions of the infrastructure for digitised data and communications going forward. So I'm really pleased that next week, we're going to have the UK's biggest telecommunications company, BT, come on the podcast. We've got Mark Alera coming on, who looks after the consumer division. And so we talked to him about some of the plays that BT have made into sport, where he sees the future of jobs lying in that, and what the differences are 
in terms of running a team of tens of thousands of people. If you want to see how you can partner with Jimmy's Jobs of the Future podcast, then just check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. And one of the challenges of you know growing companies here in the UK, right? Because there is a sort of danger of the you know it, it all ends up in California and is pouring lots of money over there. Is university spinouts, and I know previously you held the role of, of university minister for quite some time. So how th- there is still a challenge there in terms of that development of that part of the ecosystem of universities wanting to take too much from these kind of spinouts. How do we change that? So that is something that I'm looking at because you, you're, you're quite right. That has been a challenge in the past and has potentially limited some possibilities, uh, but it's about getting the balance right. So in the first few weeks, it's something that I've been looking at and we'll be fleshing that out over the coming few weeks. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you will read between the lines there. Um, and, and what, how do we get people excited more generally about science? I mean, it does feel with COVID vaccination and so on. So yeah. science had a bit yeah, of a kind of like. Absolutely moment kind of almost like the olympics in 2012 perhaps because <laughs> one of the stats that i was struck by in the paper was that 57 percent of people could only see you know opportunities coming from science development and the paper says it sh- that should be 80 percent. so how do we get from that 57 to that 80 well, i think i think you're right that in the pandemic it really opened people's uh, eyes up to um to also the individuals as mm, the personalities yeah. as well um, who have been working in this sector and the, the possibilities. And it showed just just how much of an impact the science can have because it basically unlocked our, our whole society, didn't it? And allowed us to get back to living like we are doing now uh, in a, a normal way. But I think there is a danger that when we talk about these things, that they appear very abstract and very remote and very distant, especially when you're talking about the future, especially in things like a cost of living crisis, when people are really worried about, you know, how are they going to put food on the table today? How are they going to pay that energy bill? And that's why um, it's incumbent upon our department to really explain those benefits to people and those possibilities, but also make it clear that we are the Department of Future Jobs. We're the Department of uh, Improving uh, People's Lives. But so that in the future, we won't have to face the same challenges that we are facing today. Things like energy security will, will be tackled with uh, the use of, of technology, um, uh, supporting our farmers as well, again via uh, science and, and, and technology. So all of these uh, challenges that we're facing today won't have to be faced by them in the future and their children. And if you were starting out in your career, where do you think you would be looking to begin it now with all the technology that's taking place? Well, that's a really good question. So for the very beginning, you mean? Yeah, yeah sort of, yeah, kind of early 20s. I, I think I would still have followed the same path that I followed, to be honest. Um, and yeah. I, I worked in um, international marketing before I entered politics. And I was very clear that I wanted to, well, I still always wanted to get into politics. Mm. I, I felt I wanted a job outside of politics first so I could be a better representative yeah. and have a better uh, insight um, to, to bring to the table. So I think I was still done that, but I think I probably would have just been a lot more efficient and effective at my job. Um, and a lot less paper driven. <laughs> um, and speaking of that, like one of the jobs, one of the eye catching jobs that you had beforehand was working for the uh, Worldwide Wrestling Entertainment. Yes. How did that kind of prepare you for politics? A lot of people ask me this. I mean, there was lots of big personalities, <laughs> yeah. which is very true of politics. Um, and it was actually a very commercial organization because mm. it's American. So it's very uh, fast paced, which politics is too. Um, and uh, taught me to adapt to different situations, I guess, as well. 
Um, but I, the key priority for me was always about uh, making sure that I had um, as much diverse experience as possible before for entering politics. I don't think you get much more diverse than WWE, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, certainly. And I, I, I know you were very set on becoming kind of like a politician from from an early age. And, and what sort of, what attracted you to that? Because you're right. Yeah. I, I think actually WWE, like it's, it's quite amazing the, the amount of money it's now worth. And mm. like it's a real example of the modern day economy, mm. creator economy, you know, part entertainment, part sport. You know, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary story. Yeah, uh, actually, what what did you learn from being in an American company and like that? Um, I learned I don't want to work in America um, because of the uh, because of uh, obviously we have you know much more generous employment legislation as well. But um, what did I learn about working in an American company? I think I I've always had a very uh, key work ethic and I've been very driven, so that kind of environment actually suited me. Um, but I think it's more about you know, what did I work, learn in, in the commercial sector in general about being results orientated, being outcomes focused, and they're the types of things that I, I try to bring to politics. And why did you sort of pick that kind of career sort of to get that outside um, political experience? Because, you know, you studied history and politics at university, yeah. so you could have followed the researcher, spad, you know, sort of dreadful people as your spad eyes me in the corner. But, <laughs> um, and, but why did you pick that as the sector to kind of go for? Uh, if I'm being honest, I, if I had my time again and degree apprenticeships had been uh, around, mm. I probably would have done a degree apprenticeship because I did finish university and think, I really have a passion for marketing. I have zero experience in marketing and zero qualifications. Yeah. And that was a bit of a challenge then starting out. Whereas if I'd have had that amazing opportunity of doing a degree apprenticeship of learning and earning at the same time, I would have bitten your hand off. And I'm yeah. a huge advocate of, of degree apprenticeships. I was when I worked in uh, education, but it was just be basically because I was passionate about marketing. And um, really had a, a, an interest in in the media and communication side. Which degree apprenticeships that you saw when, particularly in the education department, I imagine, yeah. really stood out as thinking, "Gosh, that is something. If that were available, I would want to do if I had my time again." I think it was less about you know a particular degree apprenticeship in X because there's so many, and it depends on the company that you're you're working with. And it was more about the opportunities and the way that they can give you that experience from day one. And they're so valuable from a, a social mobility leveling up point of view as well, because they unlock uh, the uh, the option of university for many families that will be put off it. Yeah. Um, but also it really give you, yeah, that tangible experience to to progress your career. I, I'm a massive advocate. I think, think they're hugely, uh, hugely underestimated as well. And we should be continuing to roll them out, which we're doing, but also encouraging parents and uh, and young people to, to take a serious look at degree apprenticeships. And how do we like improve the sort of like the the branding of that? Because there is still a bit of a, a, a challenge of that. I mean, you know, if you look around the cabinet table, you know, a lot of people studied kind of humanities, etc. Like, how do we kind of encourage people into degree apprenticeships? Um, well, I think partly it's, uh, it's slightly going the other way at the moment because I think it's more switched on parents that are actually encouraging their children, the study show, to, to, to look at degree apprenticeships because they realise all those benefits that um, we've just been through. So we need to raise awareness amongst everybody about those opportunities and also encourage businesses to recognise because they won't work unless businesses keep, keep taking those places. So we need to expand the availability of degree apprenticeships. And also the volume of, of Russell Group universities offering them, which has been going up um, dramatically. And they've done a great job at trying to expand them, I think, continuing to do that. There's no one size that fits all when it comes to education. Uh, and you know, university is right for some. It's not right for others. 
going straight into uh, industry is better for others. It all depends on where you want to get and your individual um, skill set and uh, the sector that you want to work in. University and it certainly isn't the, the, the be-all and end-all for everybody. Yeah, and I suppose if you want, you know, if you wanted a career in some of these like amazing technologies that we yeah. talked about, like you know, quantum AI, where would you go to to look for these things as a youngster? Well, I was at the National Quantum Lab um, literally a few weeks ago, and I was talking to apprentices there, and and they hadn't been to university; they'd gone straight into to that opportunity. Some of them were going to go to university later, some of them uh, not, and that had opened you know, doors into something that they hadn't heard of before. They'd found out about at school. And it was really giving them uh, the career that they wanted, and that was that was incredible to hear about. So there's there's lots of different ways that you can find out about these amazing opportunities. But I think the key is to recognise that it's not one size fits all. It's not go to university is success. Not go to university is not. It's far. It's completely the opposite. I think it's it's a, a mixture of and tailored to the individual. Do you think there's something that we could do around the culture of like you know because th- there is a bit of a you know, sort of a slipstream at some of the schools in terms of, right, you know, you will get your A-levels and then you'll go mm-hmm. almost straight to university. Is this something culturally that we can do in terms of sort of encouraging people more towards industry at the outset and then potentially doing a degree when they learn a bit more later on? Yes, we've been doing that. So we've been challenging the perceptions around apprenticeships in general. Um, and of course, we've got the apprenticeship levy and the other mechanisms to, to support that. We've launched T-levels as well, which is... Um, uh, proving very successful and giving people more of a hands-on experience at a younger age and giving them that industry experience as well. And then we're we're in the process of uh, launching something called LLE, so Lifelong Loan Entitlement, which is basically about being able to study in a more modulized fashion. So you could go do your degree, but you could do a term at a time and build it over the course of uh, of your career because it's not just about people getting the skills when they're 18 to 21, actually, the way that technology is advancing, we need people to be constantly reskilling and upskilling because jobs will be changing literally before our eyes. And we need a nimble workforce to be able to cope and deal with that. Um, and yeah, I think it's an incredibly exciting government policy and very forward thinking in terms of like that because people's careers are going to last longer than ever, right? They're going to last mm-hmm. 50, maybe even up to 60 years, and people are going to need to retrain a, a number of times. And it's going to be difficult to know what that um what what that is to do as well um what in terms of what you've said previously before to ask about some of the more kind of like personal things you you wanted to be a politician from quite an early age um and and so on and and you seeing kind of margaret thatcher on telly was sort of one of those moments of where you thought that's kind of the world that i want to want to go into what would your advice be to a young person thinking of going into politics? Well, I always say, I always say, don't do it if you want to do it. Do it if you have to do it, because it's it's really it is an entire lifestyle. It's not a a job. It's it's much more like a vocation. Um, it's it's you know, seven days a week, day and night, uh, and you have to give a heck of a lot of yourself to be able to do it properly. I think. Mm. Um, but if you really, really do feel that you you have to do it, then never ever give up. You know, throughout my childhood, I can tell you. And a lot of people laughed and said I would never do it. And also a lot of people uh, thought that uh, I I was mad for even thinking that I wanted to do it. And so I think perseverance and dedication, at whatever stage you're at thinking about a political career, is is probably um, uh, key skill sets you have to have uh, because also there's going to be a lot of knockbacks as well. Yeah. And one of the things you said as well before is that 
that actually it's incredibly difficult to switch off and almost impossible mm. if you want to be a good member of parliament. But but how do you try and find the time to do that? Um, I think it's more difficult when you're a uh, secretary of state as well, because you've got in effect two jobs going on as well. Um, but you have to be a little bit disciplined to be able to give yourself some time off so you, you, uh, you can balance the, the two. But I think it is just a reality that you know that you, you're going to have to work more hours than, uh, than you would potentially do in, in, a, in other types of roles. But there's lots of roles out there where you do a heck of a lot of, of hours, like doctors, et cetera, and uh, lawyers and uh, a whole host of other things. But it does come with the territory. Um, and, and how do you switch off? <laughs> um, I like to watch TV, relax a bit, things that aren't too taxing on the brain when you've been reading your heavy box like the one I've got here. Um, uh, you want something that uh, you can just sort of unwind a little bit. <laughs> what have you watched recently that's impressed you? Oh, what have I watched recently? That's I watched Carnival Row. I just finished that. So yeah. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. No, well, I haven't. I wasn't but... a massive fan of, fan of the ending, but so I won't ruin it for anybody that's not seen it. <laughs> Very spoiler. I'm not sure I invested two seasons wisely. Is all I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> and um, you're about to go off on, on maternity leave. Yes. You'll be the first ever cabinet minister to do that, which is going to be a huge moment in terms of inspiring lots of people uh, that you know you can do top jobs and and start a family as well. Um, what what's going to be the the plan? How long are you going to be away for, etc.? Have you worked any of that out? Yeah, so um, I'm going away for a, a few weeks. So I'm not. I'm still doing my MP role whilst I'm on maternity, but my ministerial role. Uh, so I'm not taking maternity from that. But my uh, ministerial role, I'm going to take a, around about sort of uh, two and a half months. Oh right, okay. That's uh, yeah. That's it's it's full on. Um, <laughs> and one of the uh, great stories I heard about the the dedication and perseverance that you had to do was when you were a candidate in Chippenham, and yeah. you had to. Uh, you desperate to try and get some coverage as all, as all candidates are, and I, you had to enter a, a chili eating contest. Yeah, that probably would be my advice for that other question. Don't do that. <laughs> Learn by my mistakes. Um, yes. So it was at that point where I was quite new to being a candidate. It was a struggle to get coverage in the local papers, and so I thought, well, love love spicy things. Can handle chilies. It's going to be quite easy. I'll win the competition. Get, get some coverage. Brilliant. What could what could go wrong? And uh, so I entered this competition. And uh, then as soon as I sat down, I had a dreadful feeling in the pit of my stomach because the, the woman to my left turned out she was an international chili eating competition uh, entrant or that, or that toured the world entering these competitions. And then the woman to my right said to me, we won't let these people win, will we? And I thought, oh, crumbs, she's quite determined too. And um, and then one by one, I must say it was the men that all dropped out first. <laughs> uh, they were dropping out and we just kept going and going and going. And the, the chilies are from Wiltshire Chili Farm in my constituency. that We actually took Boris to as well at another point. And you had to eat the entire chili and then hold up the sort of the stem. And uh, we got through and through these chilies. And then because these two women next to me wouldn't give up and I couldn't give up because I couldn't be the candidate that lost, could I, as the headline? Um, they just had to keep redoing the same final chilies. And in the end, they had to give up and say, okay, it's a draw. But at that point, my eyes were streaming. My face had gone completely red. My nose looked like I'd been in a fight. It was absolutely horrific. So whilst I got my picture in the paper, it wasn't the best picture ever to be in the paper. So I would strongly advise don't do it. And I was dreadfully ill afterwards as well. Uh, <laughs> how did Boris cope with the chilies when he tried them? 
Um, I don't think he was a fan, shall we say. <laughs> Fair enough. We've just got a few kind of quick fires. Some of these might be uh, quick fires. Some of them might be slightly uh, longer, if that's uh, that's all right. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? So, I'm, ne- I'm not, like, I like both, but I'm not an avid fan. But I guess I have to say Star Wars, otherwise the, the Prime Minister you know, <laughs> might not do my long-term career prospects any good if I don't. Well, what's your say favourite sci-fi action movie? I'm not so into sci-fi in general, really. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I do quite like rom-coms. I know that's a bit, you know, it's not, it's not the most sort of, yeah. Favourite rom-com? Oh, favourite rom-com. Um, I like Love Actually and the sort of classics, to be honest, yeah. Yeah. If you could go to the bottom of the sea or space, which one would you choose? <laughs> I, I definitely choose space. <laughs> I think it'd be incredible to, to, to go into space. And what would be your dream job outside of politics? Oh, I haven't really got a dream job outside of politics. Let me establish that. I I think I'd like to work in education. I think that that is how you uh, unlock opportunities and and really support leveling up. Um, what's the what's the most impressive UK company you've seen lately? Well, when I went to DeepMind, who were founded in the UK and have over a thousand employees here in the UK, they were really impressive because of the way that they've done things so differently and bringing together science. Uh, and technology to create those results. And they actually have been creating some phenomenal results and there's a lot more to come. So uh, certainly they've impressed me. Um, what's a favourite invention of the last century? Uh, I think it's got to be the mobile. Well, of the, yeah, the mobile phone. It's got to be the mobile phone, eh? Um, <laughs> I don't know how I'd survive without mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and if you could meet one historical figure, who would it be? Historical figure in general? In general, yeah. Or could be scientists. Okay. Yeah, well, if it was in general, I think I'd have to say Winston Churchill because it would just be hugely fascinating. And yeah. you know, um, as a history graduate myself, you know, that would be incredible. And I can only begin to imagine the kind of uh, conversations that you could have and answers that you could get about that time period. Yeah. Well, ChatGPT may well soon <laughs> solve that as well, which is one of the uh, interesting things. Um, and what would you say is there somebody that's been particularly inspirational on your career that's been like a mentor who, along the way um i think well my granddad was was very inspirational to me um and uh, and my and my dad as well because they both taught me the value of hard work and and resilience and uh, both of those people were told you know throughout their childhood and their upbringing that they wouldn't be able to achieve in life and they worked really hard and they ignored those people and i think that's an incredible lesson that actually if you just get on Beaver, beaver away, and stay focused. You, you can achieve, and I want to make sure that that is a possibility for everybody around the country, including in my new brief. So that if people want to be scientists, they can be. If people want to be technologists, they can be. And that's why we've got to unlock uh, those opportunities by breaking down some of those barriers, including to those groups that we know find it harder to get into those kinds of roles. And what did your parents and grandparents do? Uh, so my dad had a small business and my granddad um, worked in Africa for a period of time, um, actually for, for quite a bit of uh, his career. So he, But he was born in the UK above a fish and chip shop, um, finished school, no education and managed to then go to night school and get a good job and, and end up being a, a manager very successfully in, in Africa. Um, what's your favourite podcast? I, I, I'm bit bad i never really <laughs> listen to or watch podcasts um but i'm going to do it. it's going to be my maternity resolution if that's a thing i'm going to try and use some time to to do that They're, yeah they they are quite good particularly with airpods and so when you're sort yeah. of doing them my husband's completely addicted so my husband adores joe rogan 
Ah, um, he's he's completely addicted to podcasts. So. Good, good taste. Um, <laughs> what's your um, favorite form of exercise? How do you keep fit? Um, so I love swimming. I haven't done yeah. it for a while um, uh, with this job and pregnancy, etc. Yeah, but yeah. I do like swimming, and I like cycling too. But yeah, so last summer I broke my foot, which was really annoying because uh-huh. I couldn't really do either in the summer. <laughs> Um, Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin? Um, so I think Hulk Hogan you know, was part of my childhood yeah. uh, growing up. Pretty amazing. And um, what would be your favourite meal? What would be my favourite meal? It's my mum's spaghetti bolognese. She does a mean spaghetti bolognese. Brilliant. Michelle, thank you very much for thank coming you. on Jimmy's Jobs of the thank Future. You. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, Click on the links in the show notes below.